Okay, we're live. We are live and ready to roll. And we have with us the one and only Alexander Curris in London. And we have with us the one and only our very, very good friend and someone who has been someone who has been following the war in Ukraine since the beginning. I believe you are the the original. Um, war analyst, yes. Wyatt from Defense Politics Asia. And I have Wyatt's channels in the description box down below. And when the stream ends, I will have them as a pinned comment. Wyatt, thank you very, very much for joining us on this live stream today. Thank you, everyone. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Wyatt from Defense Politics Asia. And um, so, no, very, very uh, honored to be on the Duran. No. Every, you no, know, everyone following the Ukraine war, you no know, talks about the Duran, you no know, talking about you no know, every all the big and uh, people, uh, the people who who influential or you no know, have our opinion leaders are always on this show. So to to be on this, you no, know, I feel like you no, know, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I have arrived at you know, and I and I I, I always tell people you no, know, a lot of people tell me to be on the Duran. I, I say no, I'm gonna wait for them to invite me. You no. Know. <laughs> Because to me, it's like, you know, only when I'm invited to be here that I feel like, you know, I'm there, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm so I'm very, very happy to, uh, thanks all the way uh, for Zarel to link, th- link us up, you know, to, to make this happen. Uh, unfortunately, he cannot be here due to work. Thank you to all our moderators who are uh, helping us out on this live stream today. Thank you to Zariel absolutely for, for connecting us, William. William Justice is with us. Peter is moderating as well. And who else is with us here moderating? I think that is that is everyone for now, but we'll have more moderators joining us soon. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, on Odyssey, on Rumble, on YouTube, and our fantastic community on Locals, the Durant.locals.com. Alexander Wyatt, let's start talking about the conflict in Ukraine, the war, the special military operation, call it what, what you will, the spring offensive, the summer counteroffensive. Let's, uh, let's discuss what is happening. We also, we also can talk about, what did Putin call it, uh, san- sanitary zones or buffer zones? Yeah. Cordon sanitaire. Yeah, yeah, we could talk. Yeah, we could talk about that as well. So, Alexander Wyatt, I pass it off to you. Indeed, sir. And can I just say, I mean, I have to say thanks to Wyatt for all those extraordinary words that he said. Well, Wyatt, you are here, and we are honored and delighted that you are here, can I say? Um, And I would just add, that you're absolutely, what Alex said is absolutely true. You've been there commenting, discussing, analyzing, explaining events about this war from the moment it began. And I think for a great extent, you're the lodestar. You're the person who not only analyzes the war, but does so in a very calm, matter of fact, level-headed, skeptical, tough-minded way which is not what you find with many other people. So, I mean, you know, um, when you get all this overheated commentary for many people, and of course, war is likely to induce that from many, you know, by definition, yeah. people's emotions get out of control. They tend to see things the way they wish to see them. 
they look at things and they're given an you know, inflated spin to them sometimes. Or alternatively, I've seen this also, they get over depressed, they get worried, they get frightened. You know, you go to Defence Policy Asia and you get calm, analytical, matter-of-fact explanation of what is going on. And you've been doing that week after week, day after day, month after month. Now it's year after year. So it's actually, if I can say, a tour de force, uh, a, a, a tremendous contribution to the discussion and explanation of the war. And that, of course, leads me to where we are now, because we are in the middle of this great offensive, the spring offensive, or is it the summer offensive, or is it a counter-offensive? Mykhailo Podolyak, who is um, one of Zelensky's advisors, has now come out and said that, in fact, there is no offensive at all underway. What we're getting is probing attacks. These are what these are. And I have to say that, you know, you can be very sceptical about the numbers that the Russian Defence Ministry is providing, and perhaps justly so. But what we do see are all these pictures of burning tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. And these seem to be the top end of the kit of what Ukraine has had. Leopard 2s, Bradleys, all of those things. And I can't myself believe, I can't accept the idea that Ukraine would be burning through all this machinery if it was, in fact, just probing attacks that we have seen. So where do you feel we are at the moment with this offensive? I mean, first of all, are these probing attacks? Um, is something bigger coming? I mean, I think, I think you know, we can assume that there is an offensive and still believe that something bigger might be on the way. But are we seeing something bigger? And has Ukraine been making any real progress at all. I mean, they've, they've captured a few villages. Some suggestions the Russians have captured, recaptured some of them, but it seems to be going backwards and forwards. But what is going on overall? I mean, what is your assessment of the situation? Why? So I think that uh, this is definitely not probing attacks. Uh, there are probing attacks. The probing attacks is happening over in the Kharkiv, Luhansk border, uh, at the, as well as the, you know, the Crimea forestry region so the however the the offensive around the zoporizhia and the, the donetsk westernmost part of donetsk region this is actually a proper offensive uh, there is no reasons for probing attacks to use you know uh leopard tanks uh and you know multiple mx stands and uh countless bradley's uh, it, it's just you no know, it's not it's just no logic this it just makes no sense some people calculated because I, I I'm a bit lazy to count. They say that between ten to twenty percent of the bread list is now gone, so you don't do this much of uh, casualties for probings. So the the offensive definitely was started off with a bang. I would say you no, know, they really go on in like a you no know, a real time strategy game, like a computer game. They just rush all the tanks and armor vehicles, but then it failed tremendously because uh, it it. Uh, it reminds me of what the Russians did for the Voleda, uh, they, where they attacked Voleda. Similarly, they hit into minefields, then attacked by uh, anti-tank uh, guided missiles, then artillery strikes, then the whole offensive just got abundant after they take too much damage. I think the Ukrainians suffered the same thing. And this time round is quite severe because they don't seem to have uh, even the minimal level of uh, surface-to-air missiles. Like, the entire offensive so far uh, from the 
early June until now, so you're talking about maybe 10 days already. There is only one KA-52 helicopter getting shot down. And that's stupidly low because we are talking about airstrikes, count countless airstrikes from the Russian side. And we have seen footages coming uh, out with helicopters doing guided missiles strikes, and which is something that we very seldom see earlier in the war. We always see the helicopters doing the, the rocket strikes from afar. They lobing the they lob the missile. So the the offensive is going quite badly, to be honest. I was so I actually so that's why I did the video. I said uh I analyzed the operation. I said that this is a failure because after three days they basically captured nothing. And since then they did better uh, because they swapped the operation to something more conservative. They now lead by mostly infantry. Then the armored vehicles is only using for support roles and uh, transportations. Tanks are also you no know, more reserved. They don't just rush forward. But as a result, the advance is going to be really slow. And that also, but because they are also slow, the, the Russians are also able to reinforce faster. So the, the lines are currently, you know, uh, a bit stagnant in a way. We've, we have only one or two towns swapping hands uh, pretty much in the gray zone. Like one of them is Makarivka, the other one is Lukove. So, uh, the Russians are also fighting this uh, very seriously. They are def definitely not taking the Ukrainians are lightly. So this is how I look at it at this moment. And the Ukrainians are quite ambitious, I would say. They are also they previously also launched uh, some limited limited offensive at the Bakhmut region uh, with the northern and southern flank. They also counterattack or rather you know, have the offensive operation at the Adyevka region. Currently, the Adyevka one is still ongoing. I think the Bakhmut one is kind of abundant by now. I think they did not manage to break the lines. There are rumors saying that the Russians have the most troops actually at the Bakhmut front. And I cannot verify that. It's just a rumor. Uh, it's by, by this pro-Ukrainian source. Uh, so uh, for the viewers who do not know me, I, I, I take my sources from both sides. All the mapping is all source. There is no nothing I made up. You know, it brings everything. Almost every single point is... There's a link to the where I get the information and can be fact-checked. So uh, so I have pro-Ukrainian sources and the pro-Ukrainian sources say that the, but he's he's just my secondary source, but he said that the Bakhmut front actually have the most Russian troops, maybe the highest concentration of troops, which, yeah, maybe, maybe so. Because it's the less prepared defense line. So I think that is possible. Yeah, can I just say, um, um, Wyatt, that the rigor that you have brought to your analysis is absolutely unique and commendable. I mean, uh, no one else, to my uh, knowledge, goes, at least who provides um, evidence, who provides accounts of the war on, 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 on programmes like this, uh, on programmes, goes on, makes videos, does it with the same attention to publicising and explaining sources. There's very little guesswork in the work that you do. And I think this is actually something to say. I mean, you, there's analysis, but analysis is not the same as guesswork. And I think that one of the other things I'd say is that you are one of the very few people who has actually grasped the fact that there isn't an offensive going on in just one location, because we've all been hearing for months and months about the great offensive in Zaporozhye, southern Donbass, severing the land bridge, and of course, the fighting has been there, and we've had all these very vivid pictures of burning tanks and all the rest. But actually, Ukraine has been attacking in other places. And if you 
look at what the Russian Ministry of Defense are saying. And of course, you've got to always take this with a great deal of reservations because it is one side that's saying this in a war. But the casualties that they're reporting on the Ukrainian side on several days over the fighting have actually been higher in the Bakhmut Avdevka area than they have been in terms of the fighting in Zaporozhye and southern Donbass. So it looks to me personally as if Ukraine has been giving as much effort to the attacks in Bakhmut and in Avdevka as they've been giving to the attacks in the south. Now, would that be your assessment as well? Mm, maybe, because maybe it's earlier uh, for the Bakhmut front, you know, when Bakhmut just fell. After that, there was like a two, three days of calm. You know, like, it's so calm, it makes no sense. Then after that, the Russia, uh, the Ukrainians launched uh, this pretty massive offensive that they almost took. They almost, they went into Berkivka, uh, which is actually, there's a reservoir north northwest of yeah. Bakhmut City. And the attack seems to be re- pretty big. The, the attack actually in the southern flank is also very huge because uh, that area is actually very, uh, it's more fortified. Um, the... I think the Wagner forces have kind of made a very good defense line in the south. And the Ukrainians are still pushing. They are having limited success over there. So that's as much I, that I can gather based on based on the sources. Mm. And so it's a bit hard to tell uh, because the, the excitement now is all in the Zaporizhia region. And yeah. and uh, people do have to understand that because the, the, the old scene, uh, or the open source intelligence, be it the Ukrainian side or the Russian side, they are all still human. So if they are excited about the Zaporizhia region, they'll report more about that place. Yeah. As a result, we do have a, a neglect of certain front lines. Like, you know, we have fighting reported in the Adyavka uh, region or Bakhmut region, but it's not it's not really much reported. There's not much information about it. They just say, oh, there's fighting here. Then that's all I can put. There's fighting here. <laughs> but that's, that's all. Mm-hmm. But I do... I as I usually don't tell people. I tell usually tell people not to care about the casualty rates. Uh, usually because we can never know what's the real number. And yeah. I always say that the the casualties will always be one to one. If you really want to have a sensible, you know, uh, analysis of what is happening, so you so that you don't get excited about oh we are killing them ten to one or seven to one or three to one. It's like if you if you kill them. 10,000 soldiers, you probably also less, lost 10,000 soldiers. That's usually the case. It's, it's very hard to... You know, although, although, of course, it's possible that you no know, one side can kill a lot more than the other side. It's just that if we want to look at something objectively, the best is take it as one-to-one so that you don't get excited about, you know, oh, we are so much better than the other side. And so for me, that's that's my principle. I, I think I told so many people that, you know, this is how I analyze. So usually I don't talk about casualty numbers, but I do notice mm-hmm. the Russian Defense Ministry's casualty numbers uh, as a relative. For example, when they say a probing attack, but then they quote 300 soldiers is killed. It's like, how could that be a probing attack? You know, they, yeah. they usually, usually just write reconnaissance and uh, 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 reconnaissance group attacking. It was like, how can a reconnaissance 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 group have a tanks and artillery support? So no, the Russian Defense Ministry sometimes also do cover up. They don't want people to be distracted to another front, uh, from the from from how I view it. And also the by relative, you know, from day to day, you can also have a sense of how big is the Ukrainian attack is, because the first few days of the Zaporizhia offensive is actually pretty huge. The yeah. the, the numbers the Russian Defense Ministry quoting is what. Well, 
it's very high. Now the numbers they quote is not that high. It's, it feels like it's getting a bit more to the normal, the normal zone. Uh, so, uh, but it's still higher than uh, uh, than the before the offensive, definitely on the daily basis. I completely agree with that. I mean, I think this is perhaps the best way to treat these numbers. It's not so much as a real snapshot of casualty rates, because, of course, we've got no way of independently verifying or corroborating these figures. But they do give us a good idea of where the fighting is most intense. And if you see, you know, that the Russians claim 500 people killed on the Bakhmut front, that suggests a lot of very intense fighting going on there even if this is not in itself a reliable figure that you ought to give a great amount of credence to. Um, you said that you think that the Bakhmut fighting is starting to die down. I mean, what, what, what gives you that sense? Because um, I've just been looking at the last latest Russian defence ministry um, explanations, and they seem to be, they also seem to be dialing it down a bit on Bakhmut. But, I mean, do you have other reasons to think that? Because um, I did wonder, actually, whether the Ukrainians <laughs> might actually, the whole business might actually be more about Bakhmut even than Zaporozhye, um, southern Donbass. But, I mean, what, what makes you feel that this is perhaps now starting to um, run its course? I, w I, I wouldn't say that it runs its course. It's just, it's probably more like they are, no feeling like whatever they are doing is, is not working right now. Yeah. So maybe they want to hold on for a while, uh, that kind of thing. But they are actually still attacking. The, there's still reports of fighting over at the Bakhmut mm -hmm. France. It's not like it's totally stopped. So I wouldn't... Uh, but it's, it doesn't feel like the scale that it has. So yeah. I, I, I do not know how to explain because um, yeah. if you just read on a per source, per information basis, you cannot tell. But because yes. I'm reading it on a daily basis, Yes. Even slight change of language, slight change of yeah. the terminology that they use, I feel it. I, I feel like, hey, he doesn't. Yes. He doesn't sound it, so confident. It's the granular. It's the granular sense that you acquire if you follow things extremely closely, for which there is no substitute. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, that people spend too much time getting over, getting following the details, but that's it's the details that give you the wider understanding. And I agree with that, by the way. Um, it's one of the things I've absolutely understood. So I, I think that's a feeling, if you can put it like that, which I would trust. And what about Avdeyevka? Because, of course, the Russians have been making big uh, moves over the last few months in Avdeyevka. And it is a symbolically important place for them. It's close to Donetsk City. It's where mm -hmm. apparently... The Ukrainian military in Don, Don, near Donetsk City have their main base. Um, and they've been edging. If you look at the maps, it looks like it's been taken into a semicircle. But what's been happening there? Because my sense there is that the Ukrainian offensives, the Ukrainian counterattacks, I should say, have been even less successful than they were in the backward area. But, you know, was that your assessment as well? So... NAFK France, the story actually starts with the Bakhmut, the Battle of Bakhmut. So yeah. the Wagner forces has been, you know, very busy fighting in Bakhmut. So the, the Russian Defense Ministry seems to launch a very major offensive over in the NAFK region. And, and that actually, if I'm not wrong, really draw forces, uh, no, or at least you know, create a diversion for the Ukrainian forces. And 
they desperately reinforced uh, the front line. So the Russians actually made progress. They managed to capture uh, a town or two, some small villages in the northern flank. And then they went, I think, I think there's a railway railway line, you know, close to yeah. the railway line. And, and, that's, and they stopped there because the Ukrainians have over-reinforced and they cannot break through anymore. So yeah. the they continued, the Russians did try because they, it's a bit different because the Russians, when the Russians attack, they have much more powerful artilleries. You know, they, they have more to the flamethrower systems. They have the air force uh, that is throwing all the, all the gliding bombs that mm. I think in the Bakhmut front is much more lesser because it's more of the uh, the, the close quarter combat. So it, it looks really fierce at that time. Then, and then the, after the Ukrainians reinforced, the, the attack seems to die down. And then, the Ukrainians uh, hold the line until hold the line in Adyevka until this uh, Bakhmut had fallen, and then now, and then before the Ukrainian offensive started, the the Russians seems to go on the offensive again. They just they started again, but within one or two days, suddenly the Ukrainian offensive started. So then the the Russian operations just suddenly just stopped in the Adyevka region. So. Yeah, uh, so I, I actually joked about it. I was I, I I created a video and said that you know the Russians are tired of waiting. They, they just do all their own offensive instead of waiting for the Ukrainians. Yeah, then yeah, then then in the end, within one or two days, the Ukrainians started there. So that's how I look at ADF. The yeah. the situation there is very hard because it's the most fortified region uh, along the front line, and it's a huge, it's a massive failure for the Russians because to talk about protecting the Donetsk people. It's just next to Donetsk City and is where you know, all the alleged shelling, I have to say alleged because it's YouTube, but no, alleged shelling of the civilians uh, from is all from Adyevka. And even the Donetsk people it cannot understand why Adyevka is still not taken. And it to, to probably to the Donetsk people, they feel that this is a massive failure on the Russian side. Yeah. And I think this is a blight on the, on the records of the Russians. Uh, High up there from the uh, with the redrawal from Kherson, redrawal from Kharkiv, you know, it's high up there. The lack of the ability to capture Adyevka, yeah. and it's not a very very big city per, per se. You know? No, no, it is absolutely correct. By the way, and I, I I should say that straight away. I mean, I've heard people from Donetsk, and this has been a, a matter of great concern. Apparently, I mean, you know, one can understand why if you're in Moscow, your general staff, it might look to you that there are more promising places you could advance from towards but avdevka is very important both for political and symbolic reasons and also because as i said this is where the russians say that the artillery strikes on donbass on donetsk city are coming from and the whole operation was launched to protect donetsk city and it hasn't yet achieved that objective so this is this is a major factor and it's affected i think russian military planning i mean I, my own my own sense was that last year last summer um, the russians actually diverted forces from other places which perhaps they might have actually deployed more effectively uh, uh, in other places because they really needed to start make seem to make progress in this area and they have made some progress but it's been very incremental and very slow yeah. But of course, the other side of it is, is Ukraine also perhaps overinvesting in defending Avdeevka? Because from a Ukrainian point of view, embarrassing the Russians like this is a 
you know, it's a plus, it's a gain for them. But of course, if they're bleeding to defend a forward outpost, it might not actually make a huge amount of sense, given that irrespective of the fact that they're on the offensive now, overall in this war, it seems to me that they mean mainly, I mean, they are the country that's trying to defend itself and regain territory. So what do you make of this Ukrainian practice of defending Bakhmut, defending Avdeevka, so determinately taking big losses to do so? Is this really, does it make sense? Because I question whether mm. it does actually. <laughs> Mm, that for me is generally it doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, Ukraine is in a very unusual uh, position because they have to have PR victories to convince the Western partners to give more loans, more weaponries, uh, to permit for a more advanced technology or weaponries to be given to Ukraine. Like the there is this uncomfortable. Um, mix you see that they need to show that they are successful while they are they they cannot show failures although sometimes the failures just come they have nothing they can do about it like Bakhmut city is a is a massive fail and uh the lack of reporting on Bakhmut, the fall of Bakhmut is ridiculous like you no know, if ukraine have captured Bakhmut, you know that it will be all it will be a global news the the russians capture it and and after months of talking about talking up Bakhmut, suddenly you know Bakhmut is not important. That they don't really you know report much about it. Sometimes they even claim that uh, just because of that, you no know, few square meters of land in the bottom southwest corner, which I believe is Russian controlled, they yeah, say that oh the Bakhmut has not fallen. It's like yeah, whatever, man. The the I I want to go back to Adiyevka a bit. It's just that Adiyevka is actually not a very easy. Diff- place to defend as well. It is very fortified. You no, know, from Purple Mindscape, the small little village, the entire place is just trench lines. It's just World War One, World War One land, all the way to Adiyevka. And Adiyevka itself is worse than Bakhmut to defend because there's only one road out. Bakhmut have three roads. You no, know, three at least two main roads, and then there's one more in the north. The, Adiyevka have only one road out currently. The and the Russians could just capture three villages from the northern flank down, and they can operationally encircle Adiyevka. And that's what that was why you know I was pretty you know well looking forward or excited because I thought that you no know, we're gonna see some very big move. And the Russians just stopped. They they didn't want to push forward further. And sometimes you know I wonder if it was deliberate as well. The the Ukrainians wanted to hold all the grounds, and the Russians know that. No, they play. It, it seems to play into certain um, evil plans of the Russians to you know to just let them come in. You know, just come, just come. You know, the more the merrier because you do not want to fight uh, maneuver warfare because then the then you may not have the advantage that maybe the Russians have right now uh, because the lines are very established. The Russians have superior artillery. Um, they have superior as they have air superiority, so they they can actually pound the Ukrainian forces. Like you know what the pro-Russians like to say, but but it sounds it sounds like a cliche, but it does seems like you know it's deliberate to not capture to just want the Ukrainians to go into the kill zone, so that they can take out and so-called demilitarize the Ukrainian military as much as possible, and and Adiyevka seems like the perfect place you know to to do that, like because. 
like you say, is so important uh, in terms of the symbolism. Strategically, maybe, maybe not, because the Ukrainians does seems to shown that they have the capability to build defense lines, effective defense lines, um, quickly behind the rear. So, to because I would imagine, or oh, if Adiafka fall, maybe the Russians will be able to flood out, you know, like in Popasna. But maybe it's not that case as well. Maybe the Ukrainians can build up build up the defense line very quickly behind, which I think they would. And probably by now they have already done. So so the defense of ADFK may or may not be that important, but it's just you no know, in terms of symbolism, maybe. Mm-hmm. And this symbolism forced them to put troops into it, just like in Bakhmut. And this allows the Russians to just use airstrikes to just to hammer them. And but like I said, the Ukrainians have no choice. You yeah. you, you cannot keep losing cities after towns, after villages. Then no one wants to support you. So I, I I just want to comment on Zelensky that he's actually doing a very, very good job. Uh, aside then uh, surrendering, like, you know, this is what I think he should have done. But I think he's doing a very good job given the limitations of cannot surrender, you have to fight on. I think he, he's, he has been tremendous going around pleading people to support, give the money, give the weapon, and he's shameless. Like, he he, will go, he can go to entirely, you know, inappropriate place to ask to give a speech, to talk about their country, you know, talk about, you know, how Ukraine is now the, you know, the, the protector of the world kind of thing. And and this, people, you know, downplayed it. You know, they just see him like a clown. But imagine you being him and doing this job. It's not possible. Yeah. Not anyone can do this thing. What Zelensky is doing is crazy. Is is actually he's legendary, if you ask me. So, if we put it ourselves in the pro-Ukrainian point of view, I think he's doing a very very good job. I cannot imagine them you know, able to get this many weapons. If, imagine the guy, the guy is Poroshenko, you know, mm. he would he would never get all these weapons, you know, like I just let mm. Ukraine fall, man. Mm. You know, this is this is how I feel. Mm. I, I I understand that. I, I'm not sure that this is actually how it's going to play out well in the end, because of course Putin made a very interesting point. He said that the fact that Ukraine, and this is this meeting that he had with war correspondents, he actually said that the fact that Ukraine is now so de- dependent on the West, they don't have their own military industries anymore. They can't produce their own weapons. They're completely dependent on the West from now on, on keeping themselves going. They can't even repair their own weapons because whenever they do we find out where it is and we can send our missiles and blow it up he said that is an impossible situation to be in it is unsustainable and he didn't go into great detail about the reasons for that but partly the reason is that when you're dependent on someone else that someone else has their own political needs and agendas and they're going to force you to do things that you might not want to do yourself, like defend places like Bakhmut and Abdeyevka and undertake offensives like the one we're seeing at the moment. So I, I, I think that he was quietly pleased about this. And I think what you described as the Russian strategy, letting the Ukrainians come to you, doing these kind of things, it, it's actually very consistent both with what Putin has said and with what other Russian generals have said about grinding the Ukrainians down in these places and ultimately making this too expensive an enterprise for the West to sustain. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and and I think this leads us to the contradiction between Wagner 
and the Russian Defense Ministry. Yeah. Because from for for some time, I'd always thought that the Russians, Russian defense, the Russian military just seems very sluggish. No, they just don't feel like they are. They want to move, and suddenly we have the Wagner forces in the Bakhmut, no, from the Popasna region. They just quit. They just push, 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 and captured Bakhmut city. And I feel like this is actually not the Russians' plan. <laughs> it's like no, the Wagner just do their own thing, and then they just start to capture all these village and towns. It's like the, maybe the Russian military don't 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 want this. It's like. Why, why are you keep pushing? We just want them to come. Why you? No, I, I got a feeling that's the case. And and because the it is impossible for to, to imagine that Wagner is the only effective force in the entire military, in the Russian military. It's just it's just impossible given the, the equipments the, the rest of the Russian military have. Although, of course, we do see you know epic fails, like you know, when they try to cross the Pontum Bridge. To below Horifka and then the, every everyone just died or you know the Vuleta offensive but the it it just it feels like there's a disconnect between uh, what the Wagner is doing versus what the Russian military strategy is so so it's like you know yeah it, it, it's just entertainment for me to, to see well, you know, the differences. Prigozhin has actually said this and by the way uh, there are lots of rumors I don't know whether you've seen them but he's actually had a meeting with Putin yesterday that Prigozhin and Putin had a meeting and it's supposed to have gone well though we don't know what that means actually but anyway uh, um, Prigozhin uh, has actually said that you know he when he was told to launch this this war in Bakhmut it was not about taking capturing the place it was about grinding down the Ukrainians there and um, it seems that he went further and faster than the plan was and possibly all these quarrels and arguments about ammunition supply were connected to this because he wanted to catch Bachman. And the Russian Ministry of Defense was saying, well, hold on, <laughs> quite what we want. I mean, we, 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 what we want to do is to use Bachman to bleed the Ukrainians dry. And it wasn't part of our original plan to take Bachman itself. And, you know, Prigozhin has actually said this. It's a fact which, you know, it's difficult sometimes to interpret some of the things that Prigozhin says, but you, you, can, you, you can see that. And, of course, by his own admission, he suffered very heavy casualties capturing back, heavier perhaps than the Russians would accept for one of their own units. Yeah, I think so too. I think 20,000? I think the number yeah. was... Well, that's what, that, was the num that was the number he gave. Uh, which, as I said, from a Russian point of view, that isn't the kind of losses that they that they want to see. Where do you see this war going? I mean, how is it going to play out? I mean, it, it seems to oh. me that the Russians are fighting it in a very unusual way, as you absolutely rightly say. They're, they're absorbing this offensive. There's two lines of thought. There's the view that people like Scott Ritter, who we spoke to on Tuesday, expressed, in which that the Russians see off this offensive might take a couple of weeks. I mean, I think this offensive has quite a long way to go. Uh, this Ukrainian offensive has quite a long way to go. But then once it's run its course, the Russians themselves go on the attack. They launch a big offensive. And then there's the other view, which is that they're not going to do that. They're going to continue this kind of siege war <laughs> that they've been waging against Ukraine since basically the spring autumn of 2022 focusing on artillery, taking one place at a time, 
conserving their forces, moving step by step by step. Which, what do you think their plan is? Um, okay, so from my experience of covering the war, um, mm. I I learned my lessons not to expect exciting things from the Russian yeah. Defense Ministry or from the Russian military. They never do exciting things except for the first three days of the yeah. war. You know, the, it's like you thought that they would go on the offensive, like you know, when they first captured yeah. Izium. It's like, wow, they're going to spread down and encircle Kramatorsk and Slovians yeah. and it never happens. Yeah. They just stay yeah. there and then uh, suffer heavy casualties because it's a very hard place to defend. Then, so they don't really, the, the Russians doesn't seem to want to do you know, all this brilliant stuff, all this, even their offensive. Yeah. It, it's always luck luckluster. It's like they, they, they attack for a few days, like they're going to you know, do a massive push and then suddenly just give up. So the I don't. I think I will go for the latter. I don't think that the Russians will go on a massive offensive. The reason also being that the demilitarization, uh, the objective of demilitarization, is not over yet. Mm -hmm. The you until this this part of the objective is you no know, maybe eighty percent done. I think the Russians will not go on the offensive. The Ukrainians, at most, I estimate is they probably put in four brigades at most. I don't, I'm not, not counting. I'm just estimating. Um, they have 12 offensive brigades that is set up. So there is another eight. And this eight is not even fully equipped just yet because the, mm. the Leopard 1s are still in the factories, the Abram tanks are still in the factory. So the, the, the Russians have a beautiful, sort of beautiful defense lines already prepared. There is no reason to move out of it. Until the AI, you know, like I, I described this like a computer game, you no, know, like you know, when you play computer games, the AI is always come to be a bit dumb. They will always do the attacks. So you just keep set up a kill zone and just wait for them to die. And mm -hmm. then when the entire military is spent, then you can go on the offensive because that's how you beat the AI, because the AI is always going to be faster than yeah. you. The the this this wall feels like it. It feels like the the Russians have no need to push out. They just wait for the Ukrainians to come because they have to come because they already declared that oh I we're gonna capture back Crimea, we'll eject them from no Donetsk go back to the you know, 2014 lines. And it's like they put themselves in a spot that is impossible to negotiate. And the Russians have no need to negotiate. And and on top of that, there is the geopolitical uh, sphere of things where the Russians know that this war is is causing the West a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. And and a lot, a lot of damage, high inflation, high energy price. The Russians basically, from so many anecdotal... Uh, evidence coming from uh, and uh, sharing from all the people who live in Russia or or are Russians, other YouTube channels. I it's quite clear that the sanctions have not done much at all to the Russians. I, I spoke to an economist um, and basically he what he shared is that the Russian the Russians is way more tougher than what we are reading even uh, in the media even in even the most bullish estimates mm. actually so this economist told me that is even better than that the russians mm. are even doing better than that so it's mm. so if that is true assuming that that is true then we 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 if we put ourselves as in the position of putin there's literally no need to go on off or the offensive because we you can literally just use this defense line and bleed the uh, the the, the yeah. west dry that there's no need to attack so until the entire 12 brigades all is spent or largely spent until they, the Ukrainians don't dare to attack at all, I think that's when the Russians will attack. 
mm. until and and there's another thing is that I I spoke to a foreign fighter fighting for the Ukrainians. So he's pretty neutral, but he's fighting for the Ukrainians. He shared this information very interesting. He said that the half of the Ukrainian military is actually all foreign fighters, and the other half are all very undertrained, poorly trained Ukrainian uh, mobilized troops. The so he said that you no, know, the moment the foreign fighters pull out, the Ukrainian military will collapse, and. And if this is true, so I, I have to just take it with, with a grain of salt, then if so this geopolitical war, if the West dried up, yeah. they stop giving money to Ukraine, Ukraine can't, can't pay the mercenaries, the mercenary leaves, and the off and the Ukrainians cannot push do any more offensives, or they do offensive with poorly trained soldiers and they die, and then they'll have to stop some at some point. I think that is the beginning yeah. of the end. At the moment, we are definitely not close to that. Yeah. I, I should say, after this war began, I mean, I'm not, not any sort of military historian, but after this war uh, started, I actually have been looking at how the Russians conducted in the past other wars since the Second World War, in Angola, in the Middle East, and it always follows the same pattern. Very steady, methodical operations not big dramatic moves. I mean, they, they are they are ex Afghanistan as well, by the way, and more successful in they were more successful in the end in Afghanistan, in my opinion, than the Americans were. But it's always steady, systematic, methodical. I don't know whether you've come across the expression "festina lente." It's Latin. It means make haste slowly, take it one step at a time. Don't rush. Uh, conserve your forces, avoid taking casualties, and eventually you will get there. It may take you a while to do it, but you will achieve a more complete success than you would otherwise. And that does seem to be the way they conduct war. Very different from the way yeah. we think of it in the West. We think of the West, you know, dramatic advances, <laughs> blistering offensives yeah, yeah. and things of that kind. But that doesn't seem to be the Russian style. And as I said, Angola in particular was very interesting because it had some of the similarities here that we see um, with, um, with Ukraine. And can I say also, you talked about the economics. Now, e uh, military things I really didn't. This is something that I really just was not interested in until about a year and a half ago. Economics is completely different. I did lots of work in economics and I've written extensively about the Russian economy over many, many years. And I've always taken at the very far end of the optimists about the Russian economy. I was the most optimistic and I've been astonished and how well Russia's economy yeah. has performed. And there's just just for the record, there's just been a so few of economic data come out today about the state of the Russian economy. They're now expecting 2% growth this year, 2% growth, GDP growth this year. Uh, inflation apparently is going to remain at around 2% level. All statistics far better than anybody thought about. And that would mean that the effect of the sanctions, the contraction, will have been eliminated in one year. So... Of course, they can afford to be confident because their home front, as you absolutely rightly say, is solid. So that's Russia. They can take time. They can afford to wait. What can Ukraine do? Oh, my God. 
<laughs> I, I got to offend so many NAFO people. <laughs> yeah. the, there's not much the Ukrainians can do. The 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 in, at, by all estimates, Ukraine is pretty much a failed state by now. The there is there is no the the, the amount of debt, the lack of economic output, um, the war, half a country is is not usable now uh, for industrial purposes or anything. Most of the population, uh, a lot of the populations have left. The a lot of the women, the young generations has left. The country basically have not much future left. Like it's very hard to imagine. You no, know, even if the Ukrainians win the war, it's gonna be much more of a struggle. I think it's ten times worse than what Greece faced. Uh, you no, know, during the I think a decade ago, the uh, you no know, when the Greece was facing the default. I think you, Ukraine will be ten times worse. And if that was bad during for the Greece, I think the Ukrainians one would be very very bad, unless you know they you know the U Americans are you no know, very kind to print a lot of money like you no know, after World War Two you know they give free free loans and then and then give up uh, and then you know, yeah they they waive the debt repayment maybe maybe, but it's unlikely you know because um, from from how I view it view the geopolitical scene the they don't view the Ukrainians as part of their own people. Mm. Like, like you know, the French, Germans, the Americans, they don't view Ukrainians actually as part of their own people. Mm. Tentatively, this looks like they're just they're just using Russians to fight Russians, as fast as far as, as I can tell. So, the yeah, they're just gonna bleed Ukraine dry. I, 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 I so I try not to think about it that much because mm. it's just depressing. Yeah, it, it's a bit like you know when I look at Myanmar, for example, the there is. I, how, how to imagine something positive for the country? I cannot imagine anything positive because there's no way you can eject the, ju the junta over there. You can't, if you want to eject them, you have to fight a major civil war. Many people have to die. And then after a lot of people die, a lot of mines, you know, like what happened post-Vietnam, a lot of mines like in Cambodia, then you're going to have a lot of suffering mm. post-war. So similarly in Ukraine, I, I cannot see the bright side. So what if you capture Crimea? So what you have Donbass? You your most of your adult population is dead. No, so yeah, it, it's that kind of situation. I mean, I have to also say, and this comes back to what Putin said about this not being sustainable. I don't think the West can sustain this for very much longer. I mean, again, I live in Europe. I live in Britain, and we are in deep recession here. I mean, if you read British newspapers, we're in major terms of economic malaise. So I don't think we can keep this going for very long. I mean, quite likely, if all these economic numbers coming out of Russia are correct, and there's no reason to doubt them, they're confirmed, as you said, by anecdotal views, what we could quite easily see next year is a, a Russian economy that's still expanding strongly and a West which is in deep recession. So, I mean, this is not impossible, at least in Europe. So that brings I, us gone. I do want to add, no, yeah. it at this moment is still it's still not the worst just yet for the West yeah. because the West is giving up all weapons, existing you no know, ammunition stock. The pain will start to come when the Europeans are paying money to fund the war. Yeah. So now they're giving loans and everything, you know, loans you can have contracts, then you can just write it off as you no know, future, the future yeah. income, you no, know, then uh, all this old ammunition, you know, you can you know, also count it as loans and you can eject 
everything is old. No, everything is old. The I think the problem was the pain, the real pain was start to come when the Europeans and the Americans starting to really pay money, which is starting now. They're going to build new plants to build, you no, know, to to produce ammunition, shells, and they are talking about you no know, producing new weapons you know, for the Ukrainians and stuff. So once this start to kick in for real, and the Europeans and Americans starting to pay money to fund the war, I think that's when the pain will be really bad. And yeah. it's already bad now. So I think it's going to be worse later because you will be spending money on non-productive, uh, no non-economic productive uh, means or things. So I think the worst is yet to come. Absolutely. Like you said, uh, maybe next year. Absolutely. And can I just say, if you start doing that, and we've had ample rec- predict- ample examples of this, if you start spending money, large parts of your budget on non-productive economically productive things the effect is inflationary i mean it is it that that is an iron law of economics it will eventually result in inflation it's already doing that in the west and it will make it will get much worse but that leads me to the next part of what our discussion is going to be about which is that of course putin is now talking about cordon sanitaires by the way an expression first used in the 1920s when the European powers tried to create a cordon sanitaire around Soviet Russia, Putin has taken it and is reversing it. He's talking about buffer zones in Ukraine, demilitarized zones, perhaps, some people are thinking. Now, there's lots of ways of interpreting Putin's words. Some people think that he's talking about occupying large, larger areas of eastern Ukraine, including Kharkov. Others think that he's pushing towards, he's preparing for the negotiations that, or at least the attempt to get negotiations going, which may be around the corner. Do you think once this offensive is has run its course and there's lots of weeks, months, if it doesn't make progress, that we're going to start to see a push for negotiations? By who? By the West, by the West, by the West. Uh, okay, so it's going to be, uh, it's going to be very painful, like you no, know, for the West, because when when the when the Ukrainians are unable to push to do any more offensive, they have no military power, or you no, know, it's very minimal. There is no reasons for the Russians to to capitulate in any terms. Yeah. They will just want everything and more. So. Which also means that the Russians may delay the negotiation, I I believe. So when the West, West want to talk, you know, then the Russians, the Putin will just maybe say, May, not yet, not yet, not yet. Because yeah. they will just say, they will just make an excuse like what, what they are always doing. They say that, you no, know, uh, we haven't achieved our military objective. We haven't achieved our SMO objective, which is demilitarization and you know, ensured neutral uh ensure uh neutrality you know all these things uh safety for russia's national security and i think they will just use this excuse to continue to to do their offensive and my prediction actually is eventually russia will capture anything east of the dnipro river and they will actually also push all the way captured odessa push all the way up uh along transnistria to the closest to the shortest point between the Dnieper River and Transnistria, because the reason is this is simple because it's for military defense because Dnieper River is a natural barrier so they want the entire area so they do not need to 
worry about defending. It's just like, you know, why they withdraw south of the Dnieper River in Kherson. So that is a natural defense barrier against the West because they will never trust the West anymore. So that's natural. And then they want the shortest possible front line. So that's what I predict they will be doing. And I have this prediction for at least a year now. So, and it just looks like more and more likely that this is going to happen because if the Ukrainians cannot fight anymore, then there's no means, there's no need to negotiate. You can just walk over that. So the best time to negotiate is when you actually have military strength. But if you spent all your military strength, then you, you have no weapons. Why I need to worry about you? So that's how I look at it. I mean, I, I, I would just point out that there's been three attempts by the West to open communications with the Russians over the last few weeks. One which hasn't received any publicity is from the Americans. They've tried to contact the Russians about resuming talks about strategic arms limitation. And the Russians have said no. The Russians yeah. immediately said no. Then the second one is by Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, who's apparently been trying to speak to Putin on the phone. And Putin isn't answering the phone, apparently. But, I mean, we've had it from Germany that he's trying to do that. And the other is this very bizarre proposal from a Macron for an invitation to go to the G20 summit in India. Now, not the G7 summit, sorry, the, the BRICS summit, which is supposed to be happening in South Africa, but the talk is it will be transferred to China. And the reason he wants to go, and I don't think this has been widely understood, is he wants to meet Putin there. He wants to have mm -hmm. a discussion with Putin. And I think in this case, he's probably agreed that with other Western leaders. The BRICS apparently are not keen to invite him. And the Russians don't want to see him. But I think that they are going to try to get some kind of negotiation underway over the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is clearly what's coming, and especially if this offensive doesn't succeed. And I think that if there is going to be negotiations, the Russians are going to stay, go out of their way to make their demands so high that the West won't be able to accept them. That that's my own yeah, reading yeah. of the situation. I, I think that's that's gonna be the case. I think and, that, that sounds sounds like what will happen. And I think this is where the demilitarized zones come in, because Putin was talking about demilitarized zones that will protect Russian territory from shelling, which would of course include the whole of Kharkov. I mean Kharkov is only thirty kilometers from the border. And of course, he's not suggesting that the Russian army disarm on the Russian border, but he wants the Ukrainians to pull their troops out of Kharkov city. And I cannot mm -hmm. imagine the Ukrainians agree to that in any negotiation at the present time. And that's just one thing that I think the Russians would insist on. I mean, that's my own reading of the situation. I don't know whether you would agree with this. I, I think that, um, yeah. I think the, the how how the Russians will do it, like I say, where they will kept they will push all the way, capture the, everything east of Dnieper and, and you know, close up the border. But the, what that, what they will do is that they'll make sure that the bordering country to Ukraine or the eventual Ukraine that's left yeah. will be a new republic. That means it will be like another Transnistria. It will be like another you know, uh, like you know those those independent uh, regions yeah. within Georgia, the yeah. so that they can never needs to be. A neighbor to Ukraine, 
so 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 Russia will never become a neighbor to Ukraine. And then when they are uh, People's Republic, they are all independent, uh, unrecognized republics. It's easy to manipulate the politics over there. Yeah. It's easy to use them as excuses for the Russian military to go in. You know, yeah. like in Transnistria, like in Georgia, Georgian war, they can use this as an excuse. And it's easier to manage the the politics or the, or the geopolitics uh, when they do that, rather than you have Ukraine right next to you and then you know, anything happen is a major war between NATO and Russia again. So I think that's what what I think it meant by the the this sanitized zone. So yes. What yeah. role is what 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 I mean, you're very close to this region in Singapore, you're very close to China. What do you think China's going to do? Because there's been a nothing. lot of talk in the West about Chinese mediation. You think they're going to do nothing? Then they they are they are just making they they are just posturing. They are not yeah. going to do anything. There is no peace plan. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what's the peace plan. They say that oh, the China China, China, China have some peace plan. What peace plan? I haven't even heard a single thing about the peace plan. Like, yeah. and then the Western media just run off with you no know, China peace plan. It's like I don't even know a single thing about the peace plan. At least the Indonesians you know gave. A better peace plan, you know, that they, they actually be a bit more specific. Oh, we should end the fight at this line right now. You know, at least you know you know yeah. what is that? What is the Chinese peace plan? I do not know. The, the, the China, China will eternally be a strategic rival to Russia. Eternally, they will always be a strategic rival to China. So there is no whatever friendship that we are seeing now, they is for the convenience of now. China is now making moves geopolitically uh, geopolitically all around the world so that by the end of the Russian war, when the Russians are now going to be you know, focused again to play the geopolitical game, uh, China will be in such a good position where the, the Russians will have to give them the respect. At this moment, um, I think Russia is still higher on top in terms of hierarchy to China. How I explain that is that when, when Xi Jinping uh, got his third term, basically crowned himself emperor in that sense because there's not supposed to be a third term. Just like what Putin did. No, Putin not supposed to become president again. So he's basically the Tsar. But everyone visits Xi Jinping, including in Singapore, including Macron from France. We, we go over to pay our respect to the new emperor. No, to no oh no. It's like you know the olden days where the, the, the emperor and kings you, you send your envoys you know, to pay respect. But the weird thing is the Russians didn't go to China. Is Xi Jinping himself specifically go to Moscow to meet yeah. Putin? Yeah. That shows the hierarchy, you see. The Xi Jinping, so from the moment he was uh, taken his third term, the time that he go overseas is usually uh, coincide with some major international events. That's why he's there. Then, then since he's there, he will also visit the head of state over in those countries, in the host country. But Russia... Russia's case, that when he visited Moscow, that is the only place that Xi Jinping went specifically just to meet the leader. So I think that is a sign that you no know, Russia is still take at this moment uh, on top of China in terms of the hierarchy, and and Putin made made it a show. The like you no know, when they have this meeting, you know they have this long red carpet, right? Mm. They meet Xi Jinping wait in the middle while Putin slowly stroll stroll over. Open they open this massive big door, then the Putin. Walk out and then, no, it's, it's all a show. They do show that the Russians are still the big brother between this relationship, and China knows it. And I'm quite sure Xi Jinping don't like it. So they are definitely making moves right now. 
they are trying to you know get Saudi Arabia on their side and everything, but Saudi Arabia is still playing all sides at this moment. You no, know, the geopolitical battle now is very fierce. So I think that's the main thing to watch. So I do not think China will do anything because the more the weaker Russia becomes, the better for China. Because then they can have good uh, deals, good trade deals with Russia to get more natural resources at cheaper prices, more gas mm-hmm. at cheaper prices, because Russia will be desperate for more money. So, or more you no know, supplies and more things. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so no, I don't think China will do anything. Will do anything. Oh, that's, that's such a long reply. That's okay. Don't worry. I'd like. I'd like to. I'd like to now uh, just return to the military things. This is uh, you know, the lowest part of my thing because, of course, this is the other big tantalising question about these military things. Because, of course, we've discussed the situation in Zaporozhye and southern Donetsk region. We discussed the situation in terms of the Donbass, but of course, there's this great unanswered question about a Ukrainian strike across the Dnieper. In Kherson region, a Ukrainian strike across the Kakhovka reservoir towards the Energoda, mm-hmm. to Energoda to get control of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Do you uh, think there's any possibility of either of these things happening? I mean, I've seen a lot of Russian commentators who are absolutely fixated with this. They're talking about this is the real Ukrainian plan. That this is what the real Ukra- <laughs> this is what the Ukrainians are actually going to do it, it does it does look like it it to be honest it does look like it when the satellite images came out uh where well, all the water is actually uh went out of the you know Kahovka reservoir yeah. then you see all the sand banks and everything suddenly you can see that it is technically possible to cross with your armored vehicles the all the way the but no plan is the plan uh when the actual actions, if they actually do yeah. it, I got a bad feeling that we're gonna see half of the you know, Ukrainian army die on the on the reservoir, because it ultimately is still an open ground, and then Russians still have the air superiority, so, and then you no, know, you get stuck in the mud. So the, it feels like the Ukrainians are gonna try that. It just feels like it, and the Ukrainians do. Uh, do always act on a lot of very crazy plans, like capturing the Snake Island for no apparent reason. There's no need for the Snake Island, but they still do it, sacrificing quite a number of troops for that. So the to and then they it's not the first time they did try to cross the Dnieper River as well. So I think they might try. And I in my report I actually did mention there is a high possibility they will actually take the. So along the shores of the reservoir, the westernmost part, there was there's actually this uh, something like a land parcel uh, mm-hmm. that with a very small crossing. So, and there is already three Sukhoi twenty five getting shot down over at that region. So that 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 could be an indication that that might be where they want to strike and land because if you have only a small land, uh, mm-hmm. small no uh, causeway to protect. It's easy to protect, and then you can accumulate forces because there's a huge ground over there, and then you can actually do a push uh, eastward. So that seems possible because there's no reason for Sukhoi 25 to be operating in that region because there's no fighting over there. So why are you sacrificing uh, or taking risks with your attack aircraft, which is pretty precious, if I if you ask me, for the Ukrainians, to be operating over there? Three got shot down, three. So which means that they, the, if three got shot down, means they are operating. The, the sorties are actually more than that because it, it takes many sorties before you actually get shoot, shoot down. It's not a 100% shoot down. So 
something must be happening over there. Maybe the Ukrainians are planning that. And it does make sense because you need a bridgehead, but you need a defendable bridgehead. So that looks like a defendable place to me. So, yeah, but no, my predictions tends to be quite bad sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm going to say, I mean, this is one area where I actually have some experience because, I mean, as I think many people know, one of my great pleasures in life is walking. I mean, I like to walk in the countryside. And I have to say, the idea of sending heavy vehicles across a, you know, a riverbed, even one where the water has gone, I mean, I would have thought it was a crazy plan, actually. I mean, the, the soil is going to be wet and moist and soft, even if, you know, it's dried out the water table will be very high. Um, I would have thought a lot of problems getting those vehicles across. If you're talking about a area as large as the Karpovka Reservoir, even in these smaller places, I mean, you're going to have no cover, I mean, by definition. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, um, the other side can observe everything you do. And trying to go up the banks of a dried out river I mean, just try it. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do at all. I, if that is the Ukrainian plan, I think it's a very bad one. This is, you know, my own instinct. Yeah. Maybe there's something here I don't actually see. Yeah, I so, would have so the problem. Thought, is... I would just just a bit. I, mean, I would have thought it would actually make more sense to try to cross this this river fast in boats than to actually try to wade across it across it in this way. I mean, that's that's based on my own actual experience they did try to cross with boats but it had been yeah. it had failed so many times so the the thing is we do not know who is actually making the call right now yeah. so if let's say if it's someone who is not military uh like zelensky or his defense minister is yeah. forcing the the division then no, they, they, they were like just on the surface you know look like it looks like a good plan right no there's no more water you can just roll across so and they might just force it across. Just like, I believe the, the, the division to stay in Bakhmut is not a military division. It, I believe that that was from the kind of the reading that I have done I, I, based on the different sources. It's, it feels very strongly that Zelushny wanted to withdraw from Bakhmut. But Zelensky refused. And then he threw Zelushny uh, under the bus. He said that, Oh, I have spoke to my you know, top two leaders and they you know, top two military leaders, Zelushny and uh, Sersky. They, they have recommended to me, that's Zelensky, that we stay in Bakhmut and we can defend it. He literally just threw them under the bus and they have no choice. Now they have to defend Bakhmut. And, and because the moment I read it, it makes no sense. Why is he have to emphasize that the military commanders are saying specific things? He could have just said that, oh, we are going to stay there. No, but he, he specifically named the two commanders, purposely throw them under the bus so that anything that went wrong is their fault. So, so the, the fact that there might be civilian divisions in terms of the military uh, operations may cause this kind of calamity from happening. Uh, is that it might actually cause them to do something this silly. And, and, and the, I think the other rumors was that Zelushny is, is being uh, sacked but he's no longer running the things. Mm. But then they, they cannot sack him because uh, openly because he's still you know, too popular in Ukraine. Yeah, so you know, all these things could be possible as well. So I, I, 
yeah, I would not you know, deny the possibility of you no know, Ukraine doing something very stupid, you no. Know? Like Snake Island, it was a good example already. So I yeah, I I I, I learned my lessons in this war, put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, people do extraordinary things. Actually, I what there is there was one other thing I wanted to ask. I mean, have you been surprised? I mean, I've been extremely surprised by the effectiveness of the air defense systems that we see um, used in this war. I mean, it, it, it does seem to me that, you know, people talk a lot about drones, but the real big revolution in military affairs, in my opinion, has been the way in which we've seen that air defense systems have now evolved to the level that they actually can prevent aircraft aviation being operating in, a, in an effective way. And I think this is to a great extent also explains a lot about the way the war has been fought, that you don't aren't really able to launch big arrow offensives because if you've got if you're the Russians, you have to conserve your air force. And if you throw them against the Ukrainian air defenses, that is a huge problem. And if you're the Ukrainians, you have that problem again, but on an even greater degree because the Russian air defense system is so advanced. Mm, yeah, I agree. Because we are so used to, and um, I would put it, we are so spot by the American military. You know, every time they go on operations, whoa, shock and awe, you know, Air Force flying everywhere, cruise missiles, helicopters. Then we're so used to you know, air superiority means you no, know, you can just fly anywhere you want. Yeah. That we we didn't realize what is the reality. And I think the Russians also probably realized that early in the war that you no, know, the air defense system is a problem because there was air fights. There was air fights uh, above Kiev and you no, know, maybe in Kharkiv region in, yeah. in, in the beginning of the war. And so the the fact that we don't have that anymore, <coughs> everything now is standoff. Everything Russians doing now is standoff. The throwing bombs is glide bombs. You no know, cruise missiles. Then even air to air, they are using long 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 range air to air missiles. The, the the kind of range that you see Ukrainian aircraft getting shot down is always like 20, 40 kilometers away from the front line. It's very far away. So the so maybe this is just a reality check rather than you know there's a difference. Uh like maybe it had always been this case. Because if we look at the Israeli war, the Yom Kippur war, the air defense of the Egyptians were actually very effective. Even though those are known old days, you no know, SA one or SA two, those are very old SAMs, but it works. And the Ukrainians did was at the back foot; they were losing the war until they are they they started to fight outside of the umbrella, the SAM umbrella, and then that's when they become very effective. So the, I think, I think it's just that we are just too spoiled by the by the Americans, you no know, fighting against you no know, military that is way weaker than they than them. So you no, know, yeah. I I personally also have the same problem. I. I was expecting you no know, those big arrow push, you no know, maneuver warfare, you no know, all this kind of thing. Even my friends too, you know, they are all talking about you no know, massive airborne, you no know, airborne operations, parachuting into the middle of Ukraine kind of thing. Yeah, it, it never happens. It didn't happen at all. So, yeah, I think the the for me the biggest technological uh, breakthrough uh, is the drones. Yeah. It is it, the usage of drones. I think this is the first war that drones is used so extensively at every level from the squad level all the way to the strategic level and and it's like you no know, we have the ukrainians uh wanting to launch you know, the drone air force kind of thing i forgot what's the name they use uh then they bought like tens of thousands of drones and then the russians actually quietly did the same thing 
so so now and then on top of that they have Iranian drones they have their you no know, modified uh modified now the double x-wing uh, Landsat drones which is super effective is that is crazy you no know, the Landsat drones because the Landsat so Landsat 2 and Landsat 3 the latest one seems to have anti-armor properties you no know, it doesn't just crash and explode it is it seems like there's an armor penetrating mechanism like the anti-tank kind of missile so all these changes everything so war is being fought in an entirely different way and i think that uh i think the west would one day regret uh this war because they are literally training russia to fight the modern day war mm. and they themselves are not training because the ukrainians are actually the one training for it uh but also dying, but the Russians are training and advancing, and yeah, we will see. So my one of my predictions right at the early beginning of the war, because you no know, Singapore sanctioned Russia, I was extremely against the division, uh, because I think that is a stupid division. It, it just locks us, lock us up. Uh, we have no move geopolitically uh, because once we sanctioned, we have actually we cannot really talk to Russia at all now. We cannot. We we. China will become very suspicious of us, even though you know we are we are constantly trying to curry flavor with uh, with China. But China will look at us as ah you 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 assholes. So the so the I predicted that the Russia will end up and will get out of this war as a superpower. At this moment, they are not fully a superpower, although they have the potential to be. They are a major power. But they will go out of this war as a superpower, and and that will be disastrous disastrous for my country because we made a very bad move, you know, to to sanction Russia and that put us in a very bad light, and we can see geopolitically, the the tide is changing, BRICS is getting stronger, SEO is become the Shanghai you know cooperative uh, organization is becoming more relevant. Previously, it was like a nothing organization. Organization BRICS was just you know this this few you know third world countries trying to be together you know kind of thing now it's becoming a serious competitor to even united nations so the and singapore is not in any of them yeah so so yeah so that's that's the world how i looking how i how i look at you no know, so russia is going to become very very powerful after this war especially once they get the treaties that that they want recognition for all the four oblasts that they annexing maybe more recognition from Crimea, then it, then they will have all the sanctions lifted. Oh my God, imagine they have all the sanctions lifted if they can survive now and doing well now. And then they, with all the technological uh, advancement they get in the war, building their own chip factories you know, and all, everything. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I cannot imagine the world. <laughs> after, after <laughs> I, 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 I completely agree. By the way, what you've just said about the Russians learning how to fight the West and fight, how to fight a modern war, Apparently, there are concerns about this in the Pentagon. There's apparently American generals saying, going around saying, you know, we're training the Russians to fight us and we're not getting the training to fight them. And that this is a real concern. And in fact, there's been reports about this. Difficult, of course, always to corroborate these things. But there are apparently rumours circulating and they come from very well-placed sources. Wyatt, I, I have finished. This is where I end. I think mm -hmm. I've, we had a wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. I'm now going to pass on to Alex and see whether Alex has uh, uh, some things to add and questions to ask, and I'm sure he will. Yeah, let's uh, 
but just take some questions. You have 15, 15, 20 minutes for questions, Wyatt? Sure. Yeah? I have. Let's do I it. A lot of time. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Uh, Brulal says, hello, Privet and Guten Tag from, from Switzerland. Hello there. Brulal Sanjeva says, let me actually bring it up on the screen. Wyatt, why does the Indonesian government vote against Russia in the UN? India, Sri Lanka being poor, being abstain. poor abstains. Why doesn't Indonesia abstain as well? Are Indonesians generally against Russia? Look, depending on what vote you're talking about, because generally speaking, all neutral countries will vote 100% against any invasion. The, the, this, we just have to do that, no? Because that you, you cannot encourage any invasion, so you have to vote against it. But that is just a vote. It has no implications. So, so yeah. Okay. Uh, but it does shows that you know it does shows their their their, their yeah. diplomatic positions that Indonesia is new, still not an ally to Russia, but at the same time, you know, they are. If you look by the actions, the actions speaks for itself. They are not against Russia as well. Yeah. Hmm. Um, from. Yama, Yamabushi 170, how do Western powers cope with their cognitive dissonance when they simultaneously beat a war drum against, against China while also being consistently defeated over and over in their own war game exercises? Hmm. Not, sure. Not sure if they actually always lose the war game. But, but yeah, but, but they always, the West nowadays always operates on cognitive dissonance, right? It's always very contradicting. Like, like let's say in the war context, Macron was in the early day of, of the war is talking to Putin like constantly, daily. But then he then signed a approval to give weapons to to Ukraine. Then immediately Russia is like, what the hell? Then they they stop talking to Macron. So you know, that is a contradiction because if you want to be a negotiator, you want to be in the middle, be the middleman. How can you be sending weapons to Ukraine? So, but that is just what the West operates now it just don't make sense let's not talk about the pride man <laughs> there's another big contra uh, contradiction valerian if i understood news correctly post-german leopards were destroyed by russians driving chinese washing machines firing iranian hypersonic shovels <laughs> well said yeah. there paul walker says when will russia take out deep sea communications and satellites uh never never but Med Med did send a tweet Today yeah. or yesterday, where I, I think he's just he trolling. Yeah, he's he trolling. trolling. I know he's trolling, but still. The, okay, so the yeah. reason is simple: you cannot take out this kind of thing because, just like nuclear weapons, the moment you start using, your enemies can start using. Same thing: why they don't assassinate world leaders? Because if you can miss, if you missile strike Zelensky, then you are giving permission for Zelensky to you not know, do missile strikes on Moscow, and that never ends well. So, so you don't escalate uh, unnecessarily. You no, know, if we start to shoot down satellites, we are all we are not going to watch the Duran anymore. You no, know, there yeah. is no more internet. <laughs> well, well, the context of everything, I think, for uh, Dmitry Medvedev, his context is always from the from the Nord Stream pipeline yeah. sabotage. Yeah. yeah. So I think he's kind of he's saying, well, they started it. They, they took out Nord <laughs> but, Stream. So, but the Russians are very, very. Uh, they have a lot of self control. Put it that way. Yeah. So, so, yeah. I mean, Turkey shoot down their aircraft, and Russia did yes. almost nothing. So, no. Very true. Very. True. I was I was thinking that this is going to be a major war. You know? So at, during those days, where they shot the Turkey shot down the Russian aircraft, I was like, what? Yeah. So yeah. they they did show a lot of uh, restraint 
that's for sure. And it paid off in, in the end for them. Uh, let's see, from Not a Band Account, what terms of surrender will be imposed on Russia? <laughs> uh, they, they already put it quite clearly, right? So they, the, there are some, some semi-serious from the Ukrainian leader saying about, you no, know, they want to demilitarize Russia and uh, yeah, all, all this dreamy stuff. I, <laughs> okay, so I, I like to explain to people this way. If you ask me to predict, let's say Vietnam War is actually happening right now, you know, the, the old Vietnam War, I will also 100% say that USA is going to win the war, like 100%. There is no way I will imagine USA losing the war to North Vietnam. Similarly, now, I will say that Russia you can, never lost, can never lose this war to Ukraine. It's just no logic. There's no logic in Russia to lose the war. So, you no know, talking about surrenders of Russia, it just don't make sense. It's just like, you know, talking about United States losing to North Vietnam doesn't make sense, even though the United States eventually did, lo did lose the war. So, you no know, fingers crossed. We, we never know what's going to happen. But I, I think it's unlikely because, you no know, Vietnam is so far away from the United States. Ukraine is just next door. You no, know, it's different. I, I have to say, uh, Alexander saying that uh, the Russian economy is going to grow by 2%, by 2 you said, Alexander? Yeah. That says it all right there. We, we, we've had, we've yeah. had comments now to that effect by the economics minister, Roshetnikov, German Gref, the CEO of the central bank, and uh, Yulina, uh, this, sorry, German Gref was actually the CEO of Sberbank, which is the biggest Russian bank. But perhaps the most interesting comments have been said by Nabulina. She said, you know, that the range of predicted expansion is 0.5% to 2%. But at the moment, it is the, the rate of current expansion is consistent with 2%. I think that tells us everything we, we need to know about this, this conflict in, yeah. in whole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jason says, can Wyatt explain how he came to be interested in analyzing this conflict? Okay. So it's very interesting. So I, 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 grow, I grow to have a distrust on the mainstream media over the past 10, 15 years. So because I don't trust the mainstream media and because I was... I was following Trump particularly because I, I was pretty supportive of Trump. And after Trump became president, I became really pro-Trump because the things that he's doing really made a difference. It really helped my, my region because Obama wasn't doing anything. I was supportive of Obama. I was like, wow, he's so cool. You know? Then he became president and then he screwed up my region. He allowed the, the, the Chinese to reclaim the islands. So now we have a permanent you know, military bases in the middle of South, Southeast Asia. And that's on Obama because Obama could have stopped, stopped China. You know, if you send in the Navy ships, what can the, the, the Chinese ships do? But they, he didn't. So the islands are all built now. They are all military bases now. So when Trump took over, you know, then he really pushed back on China. So China become less aggressive because China was very, very aggressive. So, but then when you read the media, you know, it was super anti-Trump. So, you know, I, I'm very, you know, skeptical, especially also about things happening in Syria with the Islamic State. And then I was watching RT. I was like, RT is actually reporting on the ground. And I was like, hey, why I never saw all these things? And then I tried to fact check and read. It's, it's true. You know, everything is true. So, so when this war was brewing before the war started, I already warned that, no, this is not going to end well. You know, the, Russia may will take actions because there is certain red lines that the Russians will take. And then when the war actually happens, I know I, I hundred just instinctively you know just know that you no know, 
no one is going to give uh, Russia a fair report. No, it's going to be just whatever we are seeing right now. You no know, super anti-Russia and everything. So, mm. so I told myself, no, okay, I, I, I need the truth. I, I want to know the truth. It, basically, the idea is just I want to know what's happening for myself. So I started to map all the information. I was inspired by, ironically, Life UA map, uh, which is actually a Ukrainian news media, which they map news on the map. I was inspired by that. I really liked it. So I, I started doing it for myself. I started to map where the Russian troops are now, where have they you know, went, so that I know what's happening. And within the first week, I can already tell that you no, know, there are a lot of misinformation already. There, you no, know, there's then over the time you'll see that uh, reports of certain front front lines, you no, know, you no know, certain news is impossible to happen because the front line is not there. Like you start to realize because of the mapping. But the main reason is just I was mapping to know what's happening. So that you no, know, I don't get duped by the web, mainstream media because if you don't map, just like what happened in Syria, I actually have no idea what's happening in Syria because all these location names means nothing to me. I don't understand when they say oh Mosul, no, what's Mosul? I also, also don't know what's Mosul. The and then it's only when you start to map it in, then you start to realize what is real, what's not real because there are certain things it's just not possible to happen when the front line is not here. But the, you say that the the maybe certain force winning certain positions, but the fighting is not there, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's how I get in. Get in. It's not really about analyzing the conflict because I, my personal interest is geopolitics. It's not the... I, I love I love military stuff, but it's just that I'm not that into military stuff. It's just that while I map all this information, you know, I get to know, you know, what's happening. And then I just share the information that I get. Mm. Since, since I have no idea what to put on my YouTube channel. So, so I was like... I'm, I, so I just I might as well just do a report since I already spent my time mapping, and then it just it just blew up from there. Very good. From Rumble, uh, Ash Ashmagola says, "Kind regards from Zurich. The Western media seem to involuntarily make propaganda in the sense of the Russians because they spread misconceptions and thus weaken the West." Can you put it up? Where is it? It's on Rumble. It's on Rumble. Oh, it's on Rumble. Yeah. Rumble. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. it's a Rumble. Yeah, hi, guys on Rumble. Hi. Thank you very no. much. And uh, Hang says this is the best <laughs> best place for update news. Thank you for mm. that. And on Locals, we have some questions as well from Thought Crimes. In your opinion, what do you think the actual casualties for Ukraine and Russia are, KIA and wounded? In a war of attrition, this is the only figure that matters. No idea. Mm. <laughs> no idea. Pierre, but but yeah. my estimate is, is actually pretty high because you are, we are talking about the the entire Ukrainian military disappeared, essentially. all Most of the weapons now is NATO weapons. So then most of the troops are all Western trained. No, like, no, a lot of the troops are Western trained, which we know that because they advertise it. They, they train in UK and then they send to the front. You know, they give them the heroic uh, farewell, you know, bullshit. And and they are fighting in the front. So if you have a standing army still, you no, know, a good standing army still, why would these people in the front line? So we you can have some kind of an estimate how how a feeling how much Ukraine have lost because if not, you were not gonna see all these new weapons on the front line yet. Because if they should have all the old weapons, the Soviet weapons, but yeah, so no, I don't want to put a figure, no people will just you know say that you know you're wrong because we will always be wrong because we do not know what's the number. We have no idea. Uh, Pierre sixty six says, Singapore has a very capable military. Yes. Do you think they will remain neutral if war breaks out in the th in, in the South China Sea? 
Taiwan, Good question. <laughs> won't the U.S. require Singapore to be an ally? Very hard question to answer. The it really depends on the circumstances of how the war breaks out. I think because you Singapore was on the American side during the Vietnam War. So because uh, not really because we because we just fear uh, we just afraid of the communists, and then when. Uh, we were opposed of the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia to to get rid of the Khmer Rouge. So you know, it's very the the Singapore's position is very weird. Uh, we are really neutral in. So we try not to, but I got a feeling that if there's a war between US and China, Singapore will be will be so difficult because you can't stay neutral in the major war. If you look at what happened uh, in World War Two. Vinci France declared no something something like a neutrality. They because they lost the war. France lost the war to Germany, and then they become a, another state, Vinci France. And then they have they still have the navy. They are supposed to be friends with the British, but the British still sunk the fleet because they are a threat. And so in Singapore's case, we will be you know in this position as well because if we don't take a side, someone is going to take us out because of fear. What if suddenly we take China side, and then you no, know, then we become a big threat to the United States uh, Navy in the in the Malacca Straits? So no, we do not know this kind of thing. So hopefully, no, no war in China, not South China Sea. <laughs> please, please keep the war far away. Yeah, you know, stay in Africa or stay in Eastern Europe. Is I'm I'm happy there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Lada Moreau says, feelings are not the source of data. Fortunately, one-to-one -one casualties is nonsense considering that one side has air and artillery advantage over another. No, I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, it's not about feelings. It's just, it's just like you, you don't know. So it's just guesswork. Sajeva says, I think there is an element of disorganization and inefficiencies in the Russian military still, hence the inability to take towns like Marinka and Avdiavka. It's better than in 2008 Georgian conflict, but still a lot to fix. 100%. 100%. Big countries have uh, bureaucracy, a lot of corruption, a lot of uh, inefficiency. United States is the same thing, which is why they only send the Marines to fight. No, because Marines is a more compact organization. Uh, Klaus says, are there functioning back channels between the US and Russia? Yeah. You guys talked about it a bit with the three attempts to... To speak to Putin. Uh, not back channels, but I, I mean, I, I can answer that actually. The Russians say that there are none. There are contacts between the embassy in Washington and the US authorities on some limited issues. But the Russians say at the moment they have no back channels at all. And that is incredibly worrying. So this is why the Americans are trying to open these channels. <clears throat> it's why Schultz wants to call Putin. It's why Macron wants to meet with Putin in at the at the BRICS summit, because they're trying in order to get these negotiations up and going again. They're trying to do that uh, by trying to set up some kind of channel. But I think it suits the Russians at the moment not to have channels. And I'll explain why, because, of course, if you're talking with the other side, even if you try to conceal what you're doing, the mere act of talking gives things away. So you want, given that the Russians at the moment want to keep everything very closed and uncertain, because the uncertainty 
is working in their favour. For the moment, they don't want to speak to the West. It's as simple mm. as that. Sanjeva yep. says, why it's Zelensky is handled by the State Department plus the U.S. civil society. You see this in many regime-changed countries. Guaido did the same, even giving a speech to Congress. He is trained and told what to do. He is rewarded for it. Where's your sauce? No sauce. <laughs> Trust me, bro. Klaus says, uh, point Point where point where's the, where the Russian army? We only hear of Wagner. Oh, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere else is the Russian military. Only the Bakhmut city was uh, Wagner. So now even Bakhmut is actually a uh, Russian military. Klaus says Stoltenberg, Russia can't win because NATO needs to send strong message to China. This was also why the U.S. stopped the peace attempt in March twenty second. Say yeah, because they thought that they can win. They thought that the sanctions will crush Russia into you know, some kind of negotiation. Yeah, hmm. that went badly. That went badly. Paul Walker says, uh, who will pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine? And actually, there was another question for rebuilding of Ukraine. People ask who will pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine. If Russia absorbs Ukraine, there'll be no Ukraine to rebuild because then it will be Russia. Yeah. Uh, I pointed the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. yeah these, two, these two guys will be paying for it. <laughs> Yeah. Europe will be paying for it. The, I don't even think the Americans will want to pay for it. It will be the Europeans. So, yeah, because they want want them to join EU, right? So, if yeah, yeah, long live uh, democracy. <laughs> El Zoro says your mate Christian sends greetings from Shanghai. Long live emperors mm -hmm. Xi and Putin. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, Tabernak says Sino-Russian split is the only way to stop to stop. De-dollarize. It's too late, man. It's too late. The 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 it, it could have been possible before the war started. You know, if they have pulled Russia into the European side, you know, be to be you no know, more of a partner to European Union. I tell you this, whatever we are looking now will not have happened. The they pushed Russia into the China's arms. Russia didn't want to be close to China. No, they have no choice. Yeah. Sparky. Make Ukraine Russia again. <laughs> so Sparky and Rubia says old weapons and aircraft go to the same Ukraine graveyards where Maria Zakharova said the body snatchers are now legalized to snatch fresh organs. Then the uh, for YouTube wise, no, did it happen? Uh, this is not a real thing. Yeah. Uh, Sparky says America leadership. Come on, Russia! Don't you know we were just kidding around? We didn't mean it. <laughs> I got a feeling that that's what they were saying. No. <laughs> Let's see, Emperor Tsartok is nonsense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the <laughs> emperor is just an analogy. No, analogy. of course, he's not an emperor. No, because emperor have a totally different system. But you know, it's, it's an analogy so that you know people can understand why it matters. You no, know, who visits who. Russell says China will eventually maneuver to take Siberia. Uh, Vlad, the sanctions impaler. I am sponsoring the first coffee for Alexei Noxim after the stream is over. After the war, Russia will be happy to cover from the from back for China, as Sergei Karaganov says, they will be happy to beat number two. <laughs> <laughs> you, you try ask some Russians what they think. 
Jake Galt says the main purpose of the dam attack is a warning to China. Three Gorges Dam, just like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were a warning to the Soviets. It's not possible because the, the explosion is reportedly from the inside. So, so it's like the explosion was inside out, uh, but allegedly, because there is actually no real footage of the explosions and everything, allegedly, there, there's also allegedly no, no explosions. So the reality is nobody knows how the dam was destroyed. It could be also in, uh, the, the infrastructure is just so weakened by all the shelling that it just gave way under pressure. So yeah, there is actually no conclusion who actually destroyed the dam. Yeah. Uh, the the European Union, the EU Parliament said Russia did it today or yesterday. They said it's a war crime as well, but of course. Yeah, the they say Russia did a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see. Lada Moreau says, I will re remind Wyatt that Putin visited Xi Jinping during the Olympics in 2021. Olympics? Olympics. Try, try to China, <laughs> but rather to be equal partner. That's why I say it. Xi Jinping did, is not that he didn't go overseas. He went overseas, but there's always an agenda. There's always an event that why he was there. If there's the Olympics, Putin is at the Olympics, it's because of the Olympics. The, when, a, when a country leader visits a place for no apparent reason, uh, that's something. No, that, then we have to read into what is it. Disagree with the analysis. Yeah. Sanjeva is one of two. I also disagree with White's analysis of China-Russia relations. Sergei Karaganov wrote an opinion piece and outlined the strategic relationship as symbolic. Russia will be second, but will be fine. Rivalry is costly to China and will refrain, more akin to relationship between France and Britain in the late 19th century. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, Alexander says, uh, doing great work for truth, strong borders make peaceful neighbors. Yeah, true. Uh, 88th bus stop. I, I think if Russia wasn't where it is and aligned with China, the U.S. would blockade China's raw material and energy sources by now. So Russia is not junior partners in asymmetric equality. Yeah, because China, okay, so from my point of view, China was actually in a very difficult position. If you look at uh, just before the COVID breakout, he was, China was actually begging Trump uh, for a deal, a trade deal. And they are trying to you know, do something to stop Trump from you know, waging the trade war. And then COVID happened. The, the, this entire situation in the Ukraine war actually saved China from uh, uh, getting blockaded. You know, they, now can, they can have resources coming from, directly from Russia. So it's uh, still not as efficient as from the shipping routes, but you know, it's at least you know, China feel more secure. So with the support of Russia, you know, China can now act more flamboyantly so i wouldn't say that no it's nothing yeah um alexander says iraq afghanistan libya syria somalia are are all were u.s war crimes we need people okaying wars yeah yeah i mean i i i, I take that point i wasn't making um you know the, the, those kind of judgments i was just talking about military performance i mean the the, the, the russians and the soviets and the russian military is a evolution of what it was under the Soviets, have been involved in many, many conflicts around the world during the Cold War period and since. And as I said, it struck me that in every single one, they've always conducted themselves in this very methodical, very systematic way. You want the best example of this, actually, 
The one that really stood out for me, well, there was Angola, but there was also the so-called war of attrition between Israel and Egypt in uh, 1969-1970. The, the Israelis were launching airstrikes um, well to the west of the Suez Canal. The Egyptians, President Nasser, asked the Russians to come in to stop this. And the way the Russians did this was very interesting. They created a wall of surface-to-air missiles, and then steadily, step by step by step by step, they moved it up to the Suez Canal. And they took losses in the process. It wasn't spectacular, but eventually it did get to the canal. And at that point, uh, the Americans actually brokered a ceasefire, effectively, and the Israeli raids west of the canal ceased. So it, it, it was that kind of pattern. It was not you know, we send in lots of fighters. They engage the Israelis in air-to-air -air combat. It was, again, very methodical, very systematic, and very deliberate. And I have to say, very remorseless. And it seems to me this is exactly the way they are fighting this war now. It seems to be the Russian way. Not big, huge offensives. Maybe we are over-influenced by our own conception in the West of how the Second World War on the Eastern Front was fought. I don't know very much about that either, but I'm told that, again, we've got a misconceptions about this, and again, that the Soviets fought in the East in a much more systematic way than is perhaps widely understood. Yeah. Controlled demolition, thank you for your excellent work. Thank yeah. you for that. Uh, David says, China and Russia became partners when the USA invaded Iraq. Sparky says, perhaps a silly thought, but does Zelensky remind you of a dream sequence on Gilligan's <laughs> Island or Gilligan dreams? He's a puppet dictator. And finally, one more from Elza. So, so irony, so irony, I guess, ironic, I, ironic. I, I, yeah. Bakhmut is of no strategic importance, but to the abandoned villages and Kherson region that are taken are a sign of Ukrainian victory. Hmm. Interesting. All right. At least, at least they captured villages, right? So no, it's still a win. Yeah. A, a win is a win. Uh, let's uh, let's leave it there. Thank you very much, uh, Wyatt. Defense politics Asia. I have the link to Wyatt's great channel down below in the description box and i will also have it as a pinned comment actually two <coughs> channels i will have both of those channels as a pinned comment mm -hmm. as well wyatt thank you very very much for joining us on this live stream great show thank you for inviting um it's a privilege like i said uh in the beginning it's a huge privilege to be on it uh, on on this show uh i have watched from afar you know oh that show is so great if I could only be on it someday. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm very proud to be on the show. No, so thank you for inviting. Yeah, I made it. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Wyatt. Thank you very much. And as I said, we, we will certainly have you again. Don't worry. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and thank you to everyone that watched us on Odyssey, on Rockfin, Rumble, um, YouTube, Telegram, and the Duran.locals.com. And a quick thank you always to our moderators, William Justice Valley S, Reckless Abandon, uh, Peter, Yue, Zariel, 
Uh, who else? I think that is everyone that mm. was moderating for today. I hope I didn't miss anybody that was moderating. Press the like button, today. people. No, press the like button. Subscribe if you are not I, subscribed. I, to I always forget to say that. I always forget. Yeah, to say I help that. you. I type yeah, in, I always I never do that. Say, no. Yeah, I never say hit the like button or comment. Yeah, hit the like button. No, help the algorithm I, to no push I'm, this I'm to more people. Yeah. yeah, so that people can see my face. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, free Assange. Uh, free Gonzalo Lira. Thank you, Wyatt, very much. Take care, everybody. See you guys.